So I, so this sounds like a scam. So you guys get to go on vacation to take over. I, I don't know. I mean, why? <laughs> well, it why might be a scam if more of us were going over there. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. So my guest today is Tom Stocks. Tom is with Taylor Shellfish Company. I'm going to let him tell you what his real job title is. So Tom, welcome. Uh, we per- persevered through some technical challenges, which has been the theme today. You didn't know that, but every guest has had technical challenges today. And uh, so welcome. Thank you. Tell Thank us, you for having me. Tell us about you. Uh, Well, my name's Tom Stocks. I work for a company named Taylor Shellfish Farms. And I, uh, after building their restaurant group for nine years, then moved down last year to take over as director of sales. So now I oversee selling everything that we grow, hopefully at a reasonable pace. So, Okay. So... Well, let's talk about what, what do you grow? What, what are the products that you guys are currently growing in the Washington area? Because I, I didn't realize this. It looks like you guys actually have some stuff in Hawaii. Hawaii is where all the babies grow. So it's kind of a intricate process. But oh, okay. what, what we grow are, sh- are bivalve shellfish, which um, are animals, but they live their lives as plants. So, you know, for all intents and purposes. So what we do is we plant oysters, mussels, clams on the ground or in the water, and then we let them grow up and then harvest them every week and sell them. Um, okay. Yeah. And that process begins at our hatchery up in Quilcene Bay. And then for some of the products, there's an intermediate step where they go to Kona and go from <laughs> micro larvae up to what we'd call plantable seed. So that's how we work the Hawaii into the whole thing. So I, so this sounds like a scam. So you guys get to go on vacation to take over. I, I don't know. I mean, why? <laughs> well, it why might Hawaii? be a scam if more of us were going over there. <laughs> oh, okay. So <laughs> I know, I know nothing about this process, but why, if you're doing them in Quilcene Bay, why, why Kona? Why, why are they going to Hawaii? Well, um, maybe about 30 years or so ago, the government in Hawaii found this uh, fascinating site that was about 3,000 feet deep below the, 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 the island down in kind of the old volcanic floor. And it has this extremely nutrient-rich, heavily oxygenated water. And they dropped a pipe 3,000 feet down to where this kind of water um, I mean, is it a spring? I don't know. I couldn't tell you that exactly, but it's the Kona deep water site. And what they do is they pump up this water, um, up and then feed it into a business park where there is a oyster hat, uh, oyster nursery for us. They grow sea cucumbers and abalone and spiny lobster and all different kinds of, you know, aquaculture projects. They benefit from this extremely nutrient rich water. Um, and then for us, on top of that, the clams themselves, because it's mainly clams that go to Hawaii, they love the warm weather. 
and infant stage. And then it's also very easy for us to produce algae with that level of photosynthesis going on at all times. So when, you know, you think sending clams to Hawaii, uh, you know, that's got to be a real arduous process. Like millions of clams, I mean, they're about the size of coffee grounds when they go over. Oh, and okay. Yeah, and then they come back, you know, they're like 10 times the size or something, still not very big. So okay. it's just that very beginning intermediate process between when they actually go to the beach um and when they and when they've left the hatchery that some of them will go over to to uh, Kona to take advantage of this rich water and sunny sunny weather and then they'll come back over and be reminded that they're going to live in the Puget Sound. <laughs> yeah, there's no shock there. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So that's I had no I had no clue that the clams were going to the beach, much less going to Kona. It sounds like a glamorous life. I mean I just you know just kid. But I it's also hard work. But you're the you're the director of sales and and you're not, a, I'm not going to say you're a science guy and you lost me on a lot of that already. So how long does it take to grow a clam to a sellable size? Uh, about three, four years. And then every product we like, have, there's a different window. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how about like oysters, oysters? people will, well, people will always, you know, say, um, how old is this oyster? And then I'll tell them very confidently and they'll go, how could you ever know that? And honestly, the size of an oyster is pretty indicative of its age. So it's not so okay. much that, you know, when we plant them, so we know when they, when they kind of uh, get started, but an oyster will variably reach market size anywhere from 12 months to five years, uh, depending upon okay. the species and then the size we want to grow it to. Um, Pacific oyster, that's the most popular or the most common oyster grown for aquaculture, mariculture all around the world, 90%. And that is the oyster that everyone is used to seeing with the frilly shells and slightly irregular um, shape. And we sell oysters that are, you know, the smallest size would be um, about two inches and the largest would be seven to nine. And that... Yeah, so that is just a number of seasons of them just getting to mature up to that large size. Um, so from that's, that's kind of how they do it. From a taste standpoint, does that oyster, uh, does a two-year-old oyster taste a lot different than a five-year-old oyster? Um, yes and no. You know, oysters, you eat them whole, right? Mm-hmm. So... When you're tasting, if you put two oysters from the same beach um, and you grew them. Now, one little thought exercise there is that if you planted two oysters at the same time, you would eat the one that's uh, two inches long about five years before the one that's seven inches long. Right. So who knows what happened in those five years? (laughs) Um, Okay. But, but, uh, you know, the beauty of an oyster comes from you're eating its whole body at once. 
So the more mature that an oyster gets, the more robust its body will become. So as oysters get fatter and larger, you see them drift away from being kind of uh, a cold glass of salt water to something that's much more uh, developed and rich. And that is through the process of them beefing up their bodies and accumulating a, a amino acid called glycogen. That is something the animals produce to deal with the salinity of their environment and that we find to be lip-smacking delicious with um, and all those kinds of interesting flavors that come apart, come with the oyster. All right. So, mm-hmm. so that's okay. Wow. This could go, I can, I can go down so many rabbit holes on this thing. How did sure. you get started? Let's talk about you first. How did you get started in with, with Taylor? What, what brought you into this, into this business? Um, well, I, I, I got a degree from university of Washington and I graduated during the financial crisis of the aughts. Um, okay. And so I started working at a bar, you know, <laughs> as a lot <laughs> okay. of people did. And then I was, you know, really inspired to become a chef um, and pursued, you know, I thought, okay, well, if I do this, I need to be like extremely well trained and all that stuff. So I um, applied for the French Culinary Institute in Manhattan. Uh, I'm not sure if it's around still or not, but got in and then kind of did the math about how many thousands of dollars I would spend to um, pay for the tuition and live in New York and do all that stuff. And I had just kind of this uh, realization that I could, you know, spend all this money and incur all this debt to fit in with a a community that was really far from where I was from. And hopefully that I, I made it there or I could come home and, use my, for lack of a better term, competitive advantage to represent a place that I was from. So instead of trying to go play their game, I was like, well, I'm just going to make up my own game and then I'm going to be good at it. So I kind of took stock of everything that we had in our region. I got really involved with my friends um, in, you know, foraging and picking mushrooms and fishing and all that stuff. And then oysters and clams and gooey duck was just, I mean, that was like, you go to a beach, it's a grocery store, you know, the tide, you do a little bit of work and you can get, you know, truly iconic Northwest ingredients um, for next to nothing. So immediately started getting kind of interested in oysters um, and just eating a lot of them. And I, um, was like, okay, I think this might be kind of something that I'm into. Um, and I was looking for a new job. I've been working at Jazz Alley for a long time, which I still love. Um, but I needed to kind of get something going with what I wanted to do. And Taylor Shellfish was looking for people to open up the Melrose Market store. And I applied and I got the job. And then once I kind of got myself into that world, uh, then I just really ran with it. And it kind of seemed to make a lot of sense to me. So pushing that agenda and kind of building out a restaurant group and then moving on to sell things just was all very, very natural for me. 
um, after I made that decision to essentially, you know, what I tell my, uh, you know, my people all the time is that I want to, you know, sell the Northwest to the world. And then if I'm feeling a little salty, I'll tell them that I want them to kiss the ring. Cause I just think that we have, um, <laughs> world-class ingredients here. Um, and they are beloved around the world. Trust me, as someone who's now been shipping them around there, I understand how much people love our ingredients, but I think that there's a, there's an even greater appreciation that we're trying to build from a mass appeal standpoint that when you think about the Puget Sound and the Pacific Northwest, you think the best oysters in the world come from there. And so kind of, you know, emotionally, thematically, that's what guides me is, and you know, this idea that I would, I mean, I'm Puget Sound born and raised, Gig Harbor, Washington, and uh, I just want everyone to know what what we have. So uh, that was kind of how I came up with it. And then, man, by the time I dip my toe in, I, I, I couldn't slow it down. Um, it just seemed to kind of snowball. And I just said yes to all the opportunities. And here we are. Wow. Okay. So that's a cool story. But before I ask you the next part of my question, I'm going to totally go off, off topic. You mentioned Jazz Alley. What mm-hmm. was the coolest act you ever saw or heard play at Jazz Alley? Um, you know, I has nothing I would to do with every, <laughs> Well, I was very I mean, I worked at Jazz Alley specifically to watch straight ahead jazz. Um Okay. And so I always looked forward to um Roy Hargrove Quintet. That I just love may rest in peace. I love Roy Hargrove. Um I got to see Stanley Clark play um, in a really bare bones kind of thing. That was Stanley Clark unplugged. It was just mind blowing. Um, But my favorite always was a Jamal, and uh, just watching a Jamal play was, was always the best. Wasn't that a nice benefit, a nice benefit of working there. Okay. That's cool. Oh yeah. So what's, what's, so I'm, Taylor's been around since before, you know, over a hundred plus years, almost over, almost 130 years, right? It's long, long running company. 18, 1890. So wow. So things have changed. Years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, family owned and operated from the beginning. Although to say family owned and operated is a little bit of a misnomer in the sense that, um, you know, oystering back in the 1800s wasn't exactly a, 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 um, you know, it wasn't like an LLC. It was some guys growing oysters on the Puget Sound and then taking them over. So the modern company really began a couple of generations ago with Taylor United. Um, but the two original brothers had come from Arizona where they had been working for White Earp and decided that they were tired of chasing cattle around. So they came up to Washington State and uh, got themselves some timberland and some tideland. And that was right after um, Washington became a state, you know, right after we became a state up here. And it was right after 
they passed uh, the Bush-Callow Act, which um, is super unique to Washington State in that if you, let's say, live on a beach, you have waterfront property um, down to mean tide. And then below that is another property with another deed that extends all the way to the lowest tide of the year. So, I mean, what that means is that people could, you know, we own or lease all 13,000 acres of our tide land. Um, other states, it's a, it's a permit that you, um, for you to go grab oysters off the beach and that's managed as such, or, you know, it's like a very extended lease. But I mean, we have beaches that we've owned for 131 years and, wow. um, I mean, one that allows, you know, companies and families to invest and to think of it as a continued asset. Um, and then also, you, you know, that if you own it, then the, uh, the environmental stewardship, the buck can only land one place right back with you. So mm-hmm. it's a very unique, I think maybe there might be a few situations like this in Alaska as well. Um, but as far as like the entire East Coast, oystering, um, Washington is unique. And I think the only other privately owned tidelands in a, the lower 48 um, are in the Chesapeake Bay area. And King George III signed those deeds. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so there's some there's some serious history going on here. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Serious history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just out of I curiosity, mean, you know. Yeah. Is it is it easier to to own the land, the the tide land or lease it than it is to get a a permit to harvest from it? I mean, does it in, I don't want to go too deep here, but is it is it easier to operate in Washington than say you know another state that doesn't have it this way? In your opinion? Well, I mean, oysters are a very large industry in Washington State that has been supported since uh, day one by the local government um, because there are so many great places to grow oysters in Washington. If you okay. you know you look at a map. You're not going to find very many protected waterways sandwiched between two mountain ranges um, with gently sloping beaches and extreme variations in tides um, around the world, especially in a latitude that will benefit a really diverse crop of algae for them to feed on. So the area itself is made for growing oysters. And then, you know, the local governments recognize that. Um, and I'm sitting here in Olympia, Washington right now. I can see the state capitol out of my window. Um, the reason the capital is in Olympia and not, I think, maybe Walla Walla or Spokane, a few other places were up for nomination back in the day was because uh, Olympia was where the timber and the oysters came together, the two primary industries that we had when Washington was becoming a state. So oysters in Washington state are intertwined from the beginning. Um, If you want to talk about nuts and bolts, oyster farming, and if it's easier, if you own the land, um, we were talking about the hatchery, 
you know, we don't look out on the beach and look for wild set oysters and harvest them. So we don't okay. extract anything from the environment. Whether or not we could do this without owning the land, I, I haven't really thought about that too much. But what we do is we grow all of our or all of our oysters, clams, mussels, whatever. They are born in our hatchery from our brood stock that we like. And then they are raised through a series of nurseries. Yeah, Kona gets a lot of attention, but there's there's other ones that are uh, much more significant. Um, and then we plant them on the beach and then we grow them. So we've, we plant them on our beach and then mm-hmm. we care for them the entire time. Um, we move them around, you know, they start farther up, um, closer to the houses, you know, kind of the head of the bay as we call it away from the predators. And then we slowly transport them down to the lower beds where there's better feeding and, when the animal's more robust, it it will be less, uh, uh, you know, threatened by predators. So, if you could do all that with a lease, I don't know, but I do know that this whole process and industry was certainly fueled by property rights and the ability of people, um, the Taylor family and others, to know that they're going if they own this tideland, they're going to work it and expect it to produce and care for it for as long as they own it um so it's kind of a chicken and egg thing right is is oystering really popular in washington state because we have this special property rights or was oystering so so geared towards washington state that it made sense for us to um, develop these property rights they just kind of work hand in hand together at this point in time I had, I mean, I know very, I mean, I like oysters. I eat oysters, but I had no idea that they were like moved around or anything. I, so this is, this is fascinating to me. When, but when, well, let me just tell you what. So back in the day um, in Willapa Bay, when they were growing Olympias and then sending them down to San Francisco for the gold rush, what they would do is there are certain parts of Willapa Bay where um, the oysters would set really well. Um, Mm-hmm. And then what the original oystermen would do was find these immature oysters and then they would move them to deeper water and then the oysters would fatten up faster. And so the the original oyster game before we started having a hatchery <clears throat> was a lot more like ranching, you know? You you have your oysters in their their winter bed and then they go to their summer bed to fatten and then, you know, you might move some to a certain bed to capture more seed during the spawning season. Um, so it's been pretty much part of the process for a long time um, because then you just get the oysters to market faster and you get a more uh, well-rounded animal taking advantage of the right conditions for each stage of their life. Okay. <laughs> I know you deep. could go on. There's a lot. Yeah, no. Oh, there's a lot. Yeah. But let's 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 shift gears and let's talk about shellfish's tasty fun things to eat. And um, let's do it. First off, first off, I, I'm I have I don't think I've ever successfully shucked an oyster. There's got to be a trick. I mean, I teach my staff how to do them. 
in their hands, no towel, maybe some latex gloves, um, just for food safety. And after mm-hmm. they get a few days under their belt, then I make them do it blindfolded and then they all do it fine. And so everybody wow. can shut their eyes closed. And that's just because <clears throat> opening oysters is, I mean, you could have two strategies. You could have the sharpest knife and the burliest person, and you could just like muscle them open and slice them up. Um, we do things mm-hmm. much different than that at Taylor Shellfish. The shucking program is um, something I've spent the most time on. Um, had the opportunity to meet pretty much all the greatest shuckers in the world and stand shoulder to shoulder with them. We open. We, we try to. I mean, one. I want everyone to know that um, whether you're a hundred pounds soaking wet or 300 pounds, you're strong enough to open oysters because it is not a feat of strength. It is a delicate process where, you know, the thing I always say is we put our mind at the tip of our knife and each oyster has a built-in plan for you to open it as gently as possible. And it turns out that opening it very gently is also one of the fastest ways to open it. So an oyster, if it's laying on its, uh, on you know laying on the bottom shell with the top shell looking up at you is essentially a clock and the where the two shells come together that's called the hinge and we just call that six o'clock and then the bill which would be usually the side everyone slurps them out of that's 12 and so what we do is we take our knife and we casually wedge it into that hinge and then we use a little torque pop the shell, and then we just run our knife up to 3 o'clock where the muscle is, and we scrape it off the shell. And then it's done. And, you know, we can make it look pretty fancy with a lot of flipping and this and that as far as, like, you know, I'll open <laughs> oysters and the and the sh- top shell will kind of come flying off, hurtling in the air, and then I'll just have this perfect oyster right there for you. But it really are knives – you couldn't cut a lemon with our knife. I want it's a knife that I designed. I want it as dull as possible. Uh, if you poked yourself with it, it wouldn't break the skin. I don't want the tip very uh, pointy at all. I want basically just kind of a, a flexible triangle. And I'm going to use my understanding of the the anatomy of the oyster to dislodge it at its weak points. So we don't cut anything. If you've cut the oyster, you've actually failed. So what we try to do is dislodge the hinge at its weakest point, and then we try to scrape the oyster off the shell. Um, And, you know, when you kind of get with someone who knows what they're doing and you see how, um, I don't want to say low effort, but it's not intense by any stretch. It's very, you can do it very casually when you get good. and it's just kind of a, it's a much more peaceful process than what a lot of people would think. We, quite frankly, don't have L and I claims from shucking oysters. We don't get knives <laughs> stuck in our hands. Um, I mean, I, my right index finger has quite a few calluses on it because I'm so intimate, you know, opening the oyster that the 
the bill, the shell will kind of scrape me a little bit. But as far as putting uh-huh. a knife in my hand, never, never put a knife in my hand. Um, we definitely have more L and I claims from our meat slicer uh, <laughs> than we do opening <laughs> oysters. And we're, you know, we're in the tens of millions of oysters opened at our restaurants. So it, it, lo- I mean, an oyster is tough. It looks like a rock, you know, if you're not, yeah. if you don't know what you're looking for. It looks like a puzzle. Um, but once you get, get an idea of it and you realize that every oyster has the same kind of anatomy, as far as the two shells come together here, the muscles here, that this is that, you know, it all lines up. Then you just kind of relax for lack of a better term and just open them, you know? And we, I've taught a lot of people how to shuck oysters, all shapes and sizes. Um, and you know, that's something I really worked on from the very beginning is that, you know, opening oysters isn't like a buff dude thing. I think that (laughs) it, 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 it gets, it gets that kind of reputation around the world. Um, but anyone can open oysters and we've had all different kinds of people with all shapes and sizes who have been exceptional oyster openers. Um, all right. Yeah. So let's, 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 we'll come back probably. I got a couple of questions, but let's, let's move on to like other shelf. So when I think of Taylor, you know, I think of oysters, that's kind of primarily what I think of, but you guys do clams, mussels, other and what? gooey duck and gooey duck and go- you guys you guys raise gooey duck yeah so i mean gooey duck is a clam but to us it's a whole separate category you know when we say clams okay. we're talking about manila clams which are mm-hmm. um you know they're not they're not native but they're essentially native at this point in time they came over stuck on ships hundreds of years ago and just kind of mm-hmm. uh, acclimated themselves really well here so manila clams are meant to be cooked. They're steamer clam. Um, mm-hmm. And we, you know, harvest a lot of those every single day and send them to just about every market that we we service. Um, they're kind of like the heartbeat, you know, in that they're very consistent and they, they don't have a, a, a dramatic season where the quality drops off and they're kind of readily accessible through a wide variety of tides. So manila clams is like super consistent for us. Um, okay. And then mussels have a little more of a variability, but we're coming into um, peak mussel time. And then gooey duck is, you know, gooey duck's pretty consistent too because you can either uh, dig a gooey duck during a low tide or you can go out uh, scuba diving and get gooey duck as well. Um and I think we produce the most farm-raised gooey duck of anybody in the world. The Pacific Northwest is the place for gooey duck naturally occurring. You know, there's no other place like it. Um, I remember reading this statistic years ago, and who knows how accurate it is, but it was, it was you know, like the biomass of gooey duck in the Puget Sound area was greater than any other animal that lived naturally in that region. So if you like had a pile, all the gooey duck would be the biggest pile compared to all the other animals. Because by the time you get out into the depths of the Puget Sound, they're, they're just like, 
underwater trees. There's forests of them everywhere. Um, really? And that again is a testament to the, to just kind of the really unique environment that we have here. There's not really gooey ducks anywhere. So else. how long's not the, not the way we? So how long does it take to grow a gooey duck? To how long's it? How long's a gooey duck's uh, cycle? Well, I mean, a gooey duck would probably at the youngest be about seven years old. Um, oh, yeah. And if you oh. left a gooey duck to its own devices, it would live for over a century. Um, and gooey ducks and Galapagos tortoises are the only animals that can remain sexually active for over a century because they can they can just sit there and thrive once they get set in their beach and they will just live and grow and reproduce and eat for forever. I mean, we had a wow. gooey duck came in this fall. It was 10 pounds. What? <laughs> It was 10 pounds. Yeah. That was the biggest I've ever seen. And you can kind of pseudoscience count the rings on the shell like you're counting the rings on a tree. And it was 30, 40 years old minimum. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. So we send that gooey duck all over America and and it, it gets a lot of attention that we send it to Asia. Um. But I mean, everyone loves it. You know, we send a ton of gooey duck all over America and everyone's just eating it raw. It's a super popular sashimi product these days. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really, it's just, a, it's all, it's worth its own podcast for sure. Maybe a visual I, one. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a visual one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, because I looked at, I think your LinkedIn photo has you holding up two of them. Like you're, you're like in a kitchen. Yeah, that's a Taylor Shellfish Moro's Market as many yeah. years and <laughs> pant sizes ago. <laughs> yeah, well, hey. Can we- yeah. But yeah, that's two, those two gooey ducks each were probably about seven years old in my hand. Those were seven-year-old gooey ducks. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And those are so earlier about, you I said you believe those about- are number ones. Those are number one gooey so ducks, you- so they're like 1.5 pounds each okay is that is so is that how they're kind of graded is by their weight uh by their weight and then um by the clarity or whiteness of their meat um for Mm -hmm. certain customers they like like a very kind of uh pearly white meat the meat that's in between the shell kind of the breast meat they like that to be very light in color and that's basically means that the gooey duck grew in a more sandy environment as opposed to maybe a rockier or siltier environment because it's just um the slow staining of the skin due to all of the um stuff floating in the water so when they grow in these uh you know the west side of key peninsula and a lot of the case inlet there has all this glacial runoff from Mount Rainier and there's all these actually pretty fine sand beaches, especially when you get to a lower tide level and um, the gooey duck just thrive in that soft kind of clean sand. And then they grow those really pearly white breast meat. And so to be a number one, you have to be a certain size and you have to have that coloration. And then as you get smaller and or darker, um, then there's different grades 
And, you know, if you look at a piece of sashimi, you'll understand why that pearly white meat really kind of appeals um, to diners because it, it, it has a different kind of reflective hue off the plate as opposed to one that might have um, more of a stain. Kind of makes it look like it has a peel to it. So that's okay. why we grade them like that. So you opened restaurants for them. Mm-hmm. What's your, tell us a couple of ways to, besides sashimi, what's another way for, you, let's talk about how we consume your products. Like steamer clams, got that bucket of clams. We've all done that. Mm-hmm. Oysters on the, on the half shell. We've all done that. Gooey duck. I don't know that I've ever, I must've had gooey duck at some point, I, you know, but certainly not, I, I'm not, can't articulate. Oh yeah. I had gooey duck, you know, here, but what's some great ways to use these products? And then like mussels, like let's, let's go there. How do you think we should prepare mussels? So, I mean, I will say that our restaurants are a temple to raw food straight up. You know, we, you know, um, before we get to mussels, so like oysters, we, promote this idea that you know an oyster from a certain place with a certain characteristic is its own uh food experience and then the joy of eating oysters in volume is comparing all of these different um oysters together and learning kind of their story and then all the different flavors so we, you know, the majority of our oysters sold are in a, what we call a shucker's dozen, and that's usually four to six varieties, two or more a piece. And then the idea is that the diner, you know, gets a gets a tour of the Puget Sound just by eating that plate. So, you know, when it comes to raw oysters, that's about half of what we do. And so that's why we have these excellent shuckers, because we are opening a lot of oysters. Um, and then we have, you know, steamers of mussels and clams, um, that we, we sell a lot of, and then, you know, we have some regular dishes that people can enjoy. And then we have, um, I'll humbly say the best Dungeness crab program in North America. Uh, and that's very specific how we serve our Dungeness crab as well. But mussels, um, you know, manila clams, you're basically going to steam manila clams, and that's why they're great because they just have this one great application and then you go from there. Mu- um, the mussels that we grow are originally from the Mediterranean. That's the Gallo Provincialis species. And they uh, they don't get enough credit for how versatile they are. Um, so, yeah, you can steam them open and they're delightful. Um, last week we had a giant outdoor bonfire kitchen. And we were actually testing kind of the limits of cooking mussels over open coals in a variety of different ways. So we um, smoked a bunch in a cast iron uh, Dutch oven with fresh herbs and seaweed. We, um, I can shuck them. So you shuck them on the half shell and then grill them kind of like oysters over coals mm-hmm. uh, topped with your favorite thing. I, I learned about this phenomenon they have in Istanbul, Turkey, which has just the most robust muscle culture I've ever seen via internet. And it looks like whenever anyone gets out of a club at the end of the night, 
they go stand in packs of 30 or 40 at muscle stands. And that's the street food what? they eat late at night. Yeah. And so they'll fry them and make kind of po'boy-esque sandwiches with like this garlicky walnut sauce. And that seems very popular, like fried muscle po'boy. Um, but what they really do is they pop them open with like a little pen knife when they're raw. And they fill them with this um, beautiful kind of rice pilaf. And then they put them back together and pile them up and steam them. And the muscles come out and it's it's uncanny. The, the two sides of the muscle meat are wrapped around this nugget of beautiful rice pilaf. And then everyone goes after they leave the club. And they just go eat like 20, 30 stuffed mussels. And they're like playing music and they're hanging out to the end of the night. Um, just like really vibrant culture. So we uh, we did that. You know, we put on some jams and we stuffed a bunch of mussels and then steamed them. And to a person, we were just shocked at how awesome and delicious it is. So, um, so- we're working on getting that idea out to more people so they can kind of see it with their own eyes. Um, but if you take frying and, oh, and then we like grilled them on skewers. So, you know, we took this product that to pretty much everybody would be, yeah, you steam it open with some garlic and white wine and move on. And we were stuffing it with rice we were grilling it with jerk seasoning. We were smoking it with ro- uh, rosemary and seaweed. We were steaming it a bunch of different ways and uh, and then grilling it on the half shell. And it, it was as versatile as you would consider oysters um, and delightful. So that's kind of like what's on my mind right now All I mean- is the world of mussels. <laughs> <laughs> so I just that sounds like a you you had just a that was a horrible day at work. I mean to have to sample all the the harvest and and, and try new things. That's that actually sounds amazing I, actually. And I had I work, no uh, clue Istanbul. Yeah. yeah, I know. I can't I can't wait to eventually get over there and see it with my own eyes. Um I mean, I I think I might have a job that uh a lot of people are pretty envious of, and that was the whole point of me trying to get it was that, you know, we're going to work really hard. Um, you know, certainly running four restaurants at once and consulting on a few more was exhausting, but I've had plenty of days where my friends look at me and go, I can't believe you call this work. Uh, whether it's, you know, having parties (laughs) on the beach, going to Shanghai and throwing oyster cookouts or, you know, I mean, I'm the company sommelier as well. So, um, you know, six hour wine tastings. And I, I think I got a good mix of doing the difficult stuff. And, you know, like we always say, you got to live the culture you want to create. So we want people to think that eating shellfish and drinking fine wine is just the cool thing you do when you live in the Puget Sound. And if I wasn't doing that every chance I got, then I don't know what I'd be, what I'd be standing for. So let's, so let's, let's shift gears and talk wine for a second. What wines go well with, with, I mean, what are you pairing? What's, what's interesting to you these days? Well, for all of our Seattle locations, we've never poured a glass of red wine. 
Um, okay. So we have only served white rosé still and sparkling for 10 years. Um, and yeah. that's kind of a chemical uh, decision in that what gives red wine its pigment uh, pigment is, and I'll forgive me for butchering this word, but I think they're called anthocyanins, And those are particulates in the wine that have leached off the skin of red grapes. And that gives it its color. Um, it also reacts very poorly with the iodine in the oysters. So, okay. um, it, it was very controversial for me originally to refuse to serve red wine in our restaurants. And, man, the discussions that I had with customers who couldn't understand why I wouldn't do that. And it boiled down once to this great discussion I had with this um, lady who was in and she, and I gave her all the reasons why we didn't serve red wine. And she said, you know, you're just making this about you. It's not about you. And I said, well, it's not about you either. It's about the oysters. Would you like a glass of Prosecco? <laughs> and she sat down <laughs> and she loved it. And, and, and I don't know where this kind of came from, but there is a very kind of interesting subculture where uh, in America, I drink red wine with everything, whether it's, you know, tacos or ice cream. And it's my choice. And that's just my cocktail of choice. Um, so for certain people, it's really hard to get them to understand or to latch on to this idea that you would just always have certain types of wine with certain foods. And, um, yeah, red wine is great. It's wonderful. But when you're having oysters, you should have white wine. Um, and so then the white wines that I uh, really focus on, um, I'm a huge fan of France and Willamette Valley in Oregon. So um, what you have in France, you know, depending on your uh, understanding of wine, giving France its due seems a cliche. Um, but then when you kind of get into it, you begin to understand a little more. Um, for me in France, they grow wines that have a strong acidic backbone and they have nice texture. So when I'm pairing wines with oysters, more so than flavors, what I'm thinking about is how the tartness of the wine will interplay with the saltiness of the oyster to bring those two sensations um, kind of to evil, uh, even playing ground. And then I'm thinking about the texture of the wine um, as far as um, its mouthfeel and how that's going to react to the liquor uh, in the oyster. So we love Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Riesling, Pinot Gris and Grigio, <clears throat> Gruner Vetliner, all these, you know, uh, Wines with a great acidic component. Um, I used to think that I needed to find wines. I mean, I became a psalm during my tenure at Taylor Shellfish. So I, I learned a lot of this on, you know, on, on the ground uh, through the moment. So when I first, I first thought I need to find wines that traditionally grow near the beach. Um, and I had varying degrees of success doing that. <clears throat> but then as I got a little more educated and experienced and confident, 
Then what I realized is I actually wanted to find wines that grew in soil that was prehistoric oceans. So if you take hmm. uh, if you take Burgundy and Champagne, for instance, in France, um, you can walk through the vineyards and you can find a piece of marl, which is a clay limestone composite from the Jurassic period, and it has prehistoric oyster shells laden in it. And those kinds of stones are the primary component of uh, all those vineyards in Burgundy and Champagne. Um, and so you have kind of this natural story there where the wine grows in prehistoric oyster beds. The presence of limestone gives the wine um, a strong mineral characteristic and a great slow developing acidity. And then if you look hard enough in Oregon, you find um, you find similar examples of that. They're not 240 million year old soils, but they are, um, 30 to 40 million year old soils. And, um, so I just tried to find vineyards that promoted the wines that I wanted. So strong acidity, nice minerality, good texture. Um, and then usually from slightly cooler climates so that they weren't, um, cloyingly sweet or overly, uh, alcoholic, just a lot of balance. And, <clears throat> the idea is that the wine is going to have the acidic component similar to a squeeze of lemon. And so what we say is that the mm. best condiment for a, a perfectly sharp oyster is a fine glass of wine. All right. Yeah. So that's, that's what we do not, with, okay. uh, with wine. And then we've been making some wines with some um, excellent producers in Willamette Valley the last couple of years and really kind of honing that in. Um, and then hopefully one day we make some champagne with some people over in Champagne, and just kind of keep building on that program. Um, and you know the the battles that for the first couple of years I fought uh, about red wine melted into none. And then as we got mm -hmm. some tenure, then it became something that people bragged about, where. They were like, "Oh God, you gotta go to this place. They don't, they don't even serve red wine because it's all about the oysters and it's all about the oysters." And that <laughs> seemed to almost vet us a little bit uh, with the guests, um, and it became went from something that I had to talk about every day to something that never came up again. Um, That's so amazing I think it to me. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What else? Let's let's we we wanted to talk about mussels a little bit. What what else haven't we have we covered everything with mussels? Well, I mean our mussel. Um, so Gallo provincialis from the province of Gaul. These are the mussels that the Romans have been, or the Romans were raising two thousand years ago, and we essentially grow them the same way. If you went to Taranto or something down in the boot of Italy. They're doing the same thing. They're just growing them on rafts, braided into rope. And the mussels kind of grow out of the rope. And then all of a sudden you pull up just this hulking rope full of mussels um, and then clean them off and then you eat them. So it's very, you know, it's an old school type of food. And um, 
we grow the muscles here in the Totten Inlet where they they have great flow and a ton of nutrients. So they are extremely fat. And this, you know, we had kind of a tough muscle season last year with COVID. There wasn't a lot of demand. Um, you know, we, can, we don't have to get into too many COVID things. But needless to say, we have <laughs> yeah, a bumper crop. <clears throat> yeah, we have a bumper crop of muscles this year. And their seasonality is hitting right now all the way through Christmas. Um, and so for me, having, you know, focused primarily on oysters for the longest time, this is an opportunity for me to kind of dive into a product that doesn't have center stage at our company, but is equally world-class, um, in its own right. So we, you know, we just have been playing with them a lot. Uh, and the versatility is, is huge. So we're working on some ideas to get people to think muscles are cool, like our friends, the Turks. And, uh, I, I think that it's going to work. Um, but they're inexpensive. They're a superfood, you know, all these kind of, mm -hmm. uh, things besides how they taste that make them, you know, extremely popular and a good, a good opportunity for people. Um, and so I, I think that for me, you know, having done this for 10 years, I'm still kind of finding products um, and learning a little more about them. I mean, I've, you know, uh, happily acted like an expert whenever given the opportunity to kind of set that mood. But I still <laughs> find things about our company every day that I had no idea about. And getting to kind of dive into these muscles has been my most recent revelation for sure. Anytime you can cook something over a grill, you know. So what is it, right it's now? Got some legs. How are you enjoying most? Well, I um, another something we didn't do last okay. week, but I've been eating them like this for a while. I'll steam them. What haven't we? And covered? then I'll put them in. Oh, I'll steam. Well, I'm gonna. I see the thing about mussels is once you steam them, then you can do a lot of things to them because they can handle a second cooking. Um, so you steam them just enough to get them open, and then you find a bunch of other ways you can deal with them. Personally, what I love is to marinate them in fancy olive oil with uh, a little bit of paprika and bay leaf, and then let them sit in my fridge for like a week, and then you have marinated muscles that have kind of locked in all this flavor and then i'll eat them on like you know open face toast with a little aioli and a little vegetable and that is to die for that's how the spanish eat them they can them marinate them in oil and then they pop them open after they've aged for a little bit and then they eat them with toast and in in bars with toothpicks and they drink you know uh, beer and it's 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 a whole scene so i love to have a wow. jar of marinated okay. mussels in my fridge ready for whenever i that's like an everyday food you know that's like having canned tuna um it's, it's good i just, <laughs> just love it uh it's a process that to people sounds so alien and so much work i like i couldn't do any less effort to get these things made it's very simple and then when you have them you have them so that's kind of what we're working on we're trying to show people how easy some of these recipes are and then we're going to try and show them some super complicated ones to inspire them because 
that's kind of the part that's kind of the nature of food these days is you want to both make it super accessible and then you want to make it very aspirational as well for certain people because i mean the amount of people who are challenging themselves in their kitchen is i don't think there's ever been more people than now who are doing that so you seem to get some pretty good responses by doing some wild stuff that people didn't expect and then they want to go try it so a little bit of both well what's an example of a aspirational recipe what 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 do you mean by that give me an example of something complex and difficult but worth it well, I think that if you learn how to half shuck mussels and then you stuff them with rice and then you tie them back together with strings and then re-steam them, that's a pretty aspirational recipe. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> uh, smoking them over fire um, is it's, it's more than just something you would do on a Tuesday, right? Um, so anytime okay. that you can – turn a, a a recipe into an event i think that's kind of an aspirational recipe where you know i mean i've i've turned some recipes into events i've cooked a whole pig before and invited all my friends and then i had to live with the fact that i didn't do a very good job but the the fact that i was cooking it was an event in its own right you know and anytime you can do that with some food whether it's grilling and shucking a ton of oysters or you know slicing a bunch of gooey duck for your friends or stuffing mussels or what have you that a recipe that can be a party i think is kind of an aspirational um an aspirational recipe you know something that seems a little challenging and a little daunting but then if it's all there in front of you and your friends and family it's going to be something that they tell everyone about you know so a little bit of both. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're not doing shellfish, what do you like to do? You, you, you know, before we hit record, you're you're newer to the Olympia area. You mentioned you're going to the Olympia Farmers Market a couple times a week. But what do you like to do for fun and excitement when you're not selling shellfish and and helping people? You know, well, learn how I mean, to shuck. I, I like to fish when I can. <laughs> Um, but I think like everybody, I don't fish nearly as much as I want, or I, I don't fish, I don't fish nearly as much as you think I might, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and then I just kind of take it easy. I work a lot and I'm always on my phone talking to people from, you know, five different continents. So I spend time with my friends and family and I read books and I, uh, walk around Olympia and go to Seattle a lot. And I, um, Usually I'm cooking something pretty good to kind of keep growing myself. And I don't know. I'm just pretty obsessed with the whole thing. You know, um, I eat oysters on my day off for sure. You know, <laughs> I, okay. Yeah. All right. So I just kind of live this Northwest life and, uh, try to spend time with my friends and family and read a book or two and, uh, be outside. And then if I'm lucky every now and then I go catch a fish and um, I know it's kind of funny to ask people what they do. I feel like for a year and a half, I, I haven't really been able to do much. So I, I have to like think about what I used to do back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. <laughs> I go to a lot of baseball games. I do. I, 
I'll go to a oh, baseball. baseball. I'll okay. go to a baseball game by my. I mean, with friends, obviously. But then I will be more than happy uh, to go to a baseball game by myself and keep score. And uh, oh wow, yeah, okay. I still keep score, and I like you know like to think that uh, my scorecard looks pretty good, you know, because. People who keep score—it's kind of their own little. It's—it's it's not art, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's very organized craft, you know. And the way I—I I do all that. Um, yeah, I love to keep score. I can't keep score with someone there; it's too much. So, so if I want to, I usually will catch a game uh, by myself. And you know, so do you go? Do you go to to the to the Rainiers, or do you go to the Mariners, or? Well, for, when I lived in Seattle for about five years, my office was across the street from uh, what was in Safeco Field. So I would finish my work. It'd be about 6.45. I would go scalp a ticket, which is part of my favorite thing to do in its own right. Um, and then I would go just kind of... <laughs> s- I'm a, I'm a born street negotiator. I got no problem negotiating on the street. Uh Okay. So I just go grab a ticket and I go sit down somewhere close to home plate and I would uh, keep score. Usually try to pick games based on who was pitching. Um, and that's that's like, you know, that's one of my favorite things to do. But mainly I'm just trying to get in front of my friends and hang out, shoot the breeze. You know, we can all sit around and talk right, for so, hours. So here's a question for you. Go, look, baseball question. Humor me. Okay. What's the most memorable baseball game or, you know, specific part of a game that you've ever seen? Have you ever seen, have you, have you, have you been to a no hitter? No, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why I keep score. I've never been into a no hitter. So lots of times I'll keep score until someone gets a hit and then I'll just be like, oh, whatever, you know, (laughs) Um, (laughs) obviously I'm 37 years old. There's nothing more important to me when it comes to baseball than Edgar Martinez's double in 1995. But I was watching that game with my dad in our living room and we were jumping up and down and crying. Um, in person, I have, I got to see, uh, I watched Ken Griffey Jr. come back after his tenure with the Reds and White Sox and hit his 400th home run as a Mariner. And while that wasn't a season that was very great for the Mariners, there was something about watching Griffey come back and hit that home run that it felt like closure, you know, uh, mm-hmm. very, yeah. very cathartic. And then Ichiro hit a grand slam right after that, and uh, they blew him out. And I had a good mix of people I was at the game with, and so that was a pretty magical night. Um, but nothing in the world will compare to the double in 1995 that was you know there's a reason they show it every broadcast of a Mariners game it's hands down our greatest moment uh as a franchise and I just remember being 12 years old uh and I just couldn't have been more uh impressed and overjoyed in that moment so that's my obviously my best baseball moment for sure all right. I'm going to ask you a question. I've, I've never asked anybody this question before because it just kind of came to me. I think this will be fun. If you could invite one, I'll say Mariner, to go have dinner with you at a Taylor Shellfish restaurant, who would it be and why? 
So like I have hosted Omar Vizquel before. Um, he came in with his daughter and I was <gasps> like, oh my God, that's Omar Vizquel. Like if I met a president, <laughs> if I met a president, I, I wouldn't be nervous. But when I see Mariners from like when I was nine to 14 years old, I, I, I couldn't barely get a sentence out. So sitting and opening at two dozen Kumamoto's for Omar and his daughter was pretty great. Um, but I would have to sit with Edgar and talk about hitting and he would just be so like chill and quiet and peaceful. And we would just have this wonderful long conversation and we would talk about hitting for hours and just eat oysters. And I would, I would sit down with Edgar. Uh, if I tried to go hang out with Griffey, I'd be too nervous. Um, I would be like, I wouldn't be able to get a sentence out. <laughs> So Edgar's a little more approachable. <laughs> oh, I, I, wow. Okay. To, I would pick Edgar too. Yeah. And I actually, I don't know. I think I've shared this story on the, an episode before. I'll share the story with you because it's, it's cause you're, you're kind of geeking out over Edgar. So back in the, back in the day, I had a, a real, you know, a real job. And then at night for fun, I worked at Egghead Software. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, how some people used to go to the bar and throw darts and have beers with their friends. I, I went to a software store and sold software for fun. And there was this game called Hardball 4, which was a baseball simulator. And when the store wasn't busy, we would all get around and play home run derby. And I would always pick Edgar. And somebody would pick Jay Blowers or, or, or uh, Mike Blowers, not Jay Blowers, uh, Jay Buner Blowers. So one night <coughs> we're, we're playing and Edgar Martinez walks into the store to buy software for his wife. Oh my God. And I'm just like, I'm like, Joey, that's Edgar. Put Edgar on, you know, cause he was, Edgar wasn't up on the computer. So we got Edgar's little character on the computer. Right. And he comes over and he goes, Hey, that's me. That kind of looks like, and so he's playing hardball. He's doing, he's hitting home runs. Edgar Martinez is controlling himself on the computer, hitting home runs. That was great. It was, it was really weird. And then we got him to autograph the boxes of hardball four. Um, that's, <laughs> I would love to sit down with Edgar yeah. and have a, hey, it's just so, have a cup of coffee. So, just so chill, you know, just very chill. And when he yeah. talks, it just seems like he's put a lot of thought into what he's saying. And, uh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So that I'd have to say that, you know. Now I'll think about this question for okay. for twenty years, you know. <laughs> well, then I asked a good question. Yeah, no, you know? absolutely. I mean, but the thing is, is that the thing is, is though, is that I mean, I don't think there's a wrong answer. I mean, you could have just painted just the same great picture for Ken Griffey Jr. or go back before your time when like Gaylord Perry pitched for us and he won his 300th game as a oh, Mariner. Gaylord Perry was about the only really game good. they won that year. Yeah, he would be fun. Well, yeah. I would, I not to throw yeah. some shade though, but if you haven't made the playoffs in 20 years, there's probably a few wrong answers to that question. <laughs> okay. Well, right. I was trying to be nice. Yes, you're correct. <laughs> but I still yes, believe I'm ever Maybe. the optimist. Don't worry about that. But you know, we could name some names. All right. It was a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. could. But so let's let's wrap this one up. Where can people find out more about 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 you guys and and what you know what should they be looking for? So Taylor Shellfish 
Farms.com is our website. Um, I think we're on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, The Works. Uh, we have a good little social media team who handles wow. all that. Um, we, you know, we have two of our three restaurants open in Seattle right now. We're just kind of just like every other restaurant in America, trying to kind of get our teams put back together after this uh, very difficult eighteen months. So. Melrose Market, the Capitol Hill location, the original, that is open. Pioneer Square, because, you know, the Mariners are cruising right now, we we open that one next, and then we're looking to bring our Queen Anne one back online ASAP. Uh, our farm up on Chuckanut Drive in Samish Bay has tables, and it is open for business. It is cranking every, every day um, right there on the water with the whole oyster. I mean, you couldn't have a better tied to table oyster experience than going up to Chuckanut drive these days. Um, and then, you know, you can find our products in some of the greatest restaurants in America, all, you know, 49 out of 50 States, 48 out of 50. Um, and then, you know, if you find yourself in Asia, not that anyone's going over there, you go find us in Hong Kong and some of our other places where we have been had great relationships for all these years. So, we're we're around man awesome yeah we're around yeah well you but wait 48 states what two states aren't you sending to um well i'm we do we legally cannot send oysters to texas really they made up a law okay i think it's just i think that it's uh protectionism in the name of uh, environmental concerns but if you kind of do their if you take their logic it doesn't last very long and then i was wrong because it's not 48 it's 49 because okay. we do send to alaska i almost forgot so okay yeah so, so texas, texas, texas okay, is so the texas only is one man texas is the only one um otherwise it's all over the place canada mexico um and then you know for the first time in about 15 years the U.S. and the EU are going to agree to trade live bivalves. Um, so one of these days, I'll be in Paris with all my oysters, showing them off to the Frenchies, and then we will know whether or not they're going to kiss the ring. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yep. Well, on that i think i think we, i think we can you can drop the mic and we're out <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome man i i appreciate you uh being here and sharing some you know kind of just the tip of the iceberg if you will i'm sure we i'm sure we could have gone much much deeper and and all of that but i think this is great and thank you for being here that was my pleasure thanks for listening and joining me and letting me get my headphones all figured out and uh, hopefully it sounded good. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.